Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This on? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where... Science rules. It's a call-in show, people. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, please go to askbillnye.com and type on in. I want to hear what's on your mind. I want you to call me and tell me what's bugging you, what, what thoughts do you have to think, and so on. Uh, and I am joined, of course, once again, by science writer, editor, and dear friend, really, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Bill, so great to be here with you. Uh, and you are, I don't, if I may say, an exemplary specimen of a human being. I mean, it's a podcast. People can't see it. But like your skin, your bone structure, everything about you, it's really, it's looking especially nice today. Thanks. And we are joined today by an expert on examples of humans, Dr. Nina Jablonski, an anthropologist and paleobiologist who's very well known for her work studying the evolution of skin color in us humans. Nina, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Thank so you. good to see you. It's it's absolutely fantastic to be here and to look at two really fantastically beautiful examples of humanity right in front of me. Wow. <laughs> I know good Homo sapiens when I see them. And and New York City is teeming with them, and this studio has a few very fine examples. <laughs> that is, I think that might be the nicest thing anybody has ever said to me, that I'm a, that I'm a, a fine example of a Homo sapien. How did you get into skin color? You're a primatologist, a primatologist? Skin color sort of happened to me totally by accident. And it's been one of the most fascinating bodies of research I could have ever worked on. I was, years ago, working at the University of Western Australia. So, you know, she got a job at the University of Western Australia. As one does, yeah. 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 <laughs> How did you get a job at the University of Western Australia? I applied for it, Bill, just like any other old working stiff did. It was a lovely job, and I worked there for almost five years, enjoyed it very much. But in the in the course of of just sort of doing my job, I gave a lecture one day on skin because I was asked to by one of my colleagues. And in the course of this lecture, I realized, you know, I didn't know very much about the evolution of skin or the evolution of skin color. And here, all these students 
who were human biology students, they wanted to know something about this, and I couldn't give them almost anything. Anyway, I got this sort of bug to work on skin color after I had sat in someone else's seminar about folate, the B vitamin folate, and how it contributes to normal development. Days before, when I had been giving that lecture, I had read a paper about the effects of simulated sunlight on folate, and that simulated sunlight broke down folate, and they found that it broke down very, very quickly. I realized, oh my goodness, if you had a natural agent like solar ultraviolet radiation that broke down something that was essential for embryonic life for human life and successful reproduction, this might shed light on the evolution of skin color. Ah, because, so I, I usually think of too much sun exposure, the risk is skin cancer, but this is a whole other mechanism you're talking about. This is a whole other mechanism, exactly. You know, one of the interesting things about skin cancer is that it is caused by high levels of ultraviolet radiation on the skin. But most cases of it occur after people have gone through their reproductive years. Most skin cancers afflict people when they're in their late 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond. Long after most people have had their kids. So from an evolutionary perspective, skin cancer is not its not a That's big right. selective feature, but what you're talking about gets right directly to the reproductive years and the reproductive process. That's right. Here I was doing research happily on fossil primates, and I had this insight, and I didn't sort of put down the research on fossil primates. I still do it. But I started doing this research on the evolution of skin color because I realized that this needed to be studied. People are curious about why they have the skin color they have. There were up to that point, really no satisfactory explanations, holistic explanations, for why people had the range of skin colors that they did. And I thought, let's just try to answer these questions. And so back in 1991 and 1992, I started this research program. And here I am in 2019, still hitting the pavement, doing it. And it's still incredibly interesting. What makes people have dark skin or light skin? What's the deal? Well, it's so simple because, first of all, we have to think about, you know, humans as they existed a long time ago. All of us, if we could, if we could sort of reel the clock back, let's say two million years. Two million quick years. Yeah, two million quick years. You know, in the earliest days of the genus Homo, we're Homo sapiens, so the earliest days of the genus Homo, we at that time, probably began to lose most of our body hair. And body hair does a lot of good things. One of the things that it does, it protects us from the dangerous effects of ultraviolet radiation. So Just it literally blocks the sun. It literally blocks the sun. Now, when you say begin to lose, there was an evolutionary advantage to yes. not having hair because you could run farther yes. and stay cool enough to operate. Yes. And at the same time that we lost our hair, we gained a lot of sweat glands. When we lose most of our body hair, we become potentially very sweaty. We also gain, all of us, a tremendous sun protection by way of permanent melanin pigmentation in our skin. 
Lots and lots and lots of organisms, animals, have melanin in their skin to protect them from high levels of sunlight and, and ionizing radiation. And we evolved permanent melanin pigmentation in our skin to provide a year-round, day-in, day-out sunscreen under these intense UV conditions. So wait a second. So, so why aren't we all fully pigmented? I mean, it sounds like a big advantage for avoiding it, uh, folate deficiency. It was. And when we lived, when all of us, when our ancestors lived in the African tropics, we all were darkly pigmented. And this is a really important thing to know. It's only a few populations of people, and I'll hear I'll speed forward to the evolution of Homo sapiens, our own species, Around 200,000 years ago and 100,000 years ago, when people start moving to the extremities of Africa, we see some changes in pigmentation going on, some lightening of pigmentation. And then when a few small populations go into the Afro-Arabian Peninsula and thence into South and Southeast Asia. The Fertile and, Crescent and, to India. That's right. And then eventually into Europe and Eastern Asia, what we see then is a dramatic loss of pigmentation. So the current tremendous diversity that we see is a result of some selective pigmentation loss in addition to this wonderful complement of sunscreen-rich people that we find in the tropics. That is so cool. In other words, ultraviolet of your ancestors determines the likelihood that you'll have uh, a certain skin color. Precisely. And that is the beginning and the end of the story. Let's take a call. Dorothy, Dorothy, are you out there? Yes, I'm here. I'm so excited to be here. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Dallas, Texas. And I think you may have almost answered my question. Um, by the way, Bill, you're so awesome. <laughs> I had to say that. Dorothy, you're right. If I'm all... awesome. You're, you're right. <laughs> I kid. Anyway, thank you, Dorothy. Thank you. But go ahead. Hit, yeah. us, hit us with your question. If all of humanity were crowded back into one general latitude for generations, would we all become one general color again? That's a great question. Dorothy, yes, we probably would if... A few conditions were met. If we were all sort of uh, interbreeding with one another freely. That so, happens a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> so if, if everyone were choosing mates, you know, based on common culture and they, they chose mates. Naked and sweaty <laughs> mate selection <laughs> among humans. Uh, yeah, I, I do hear that hairless, sweaty men are very desirable. <laughs> This is the first time I'm realizing that, but uh, it's you're changing my world. Dorothy, I can't account for this deterioration of the conversation. Just, but, but <laughs> I don't think it's deterioration. Anyway, Dorothy, the second part of the answer is that, you know, if we were all uh, interbreeding with one another and if we all were in the same little population space exposed to the same environmental conditions, yes, we would all come to, you know, to look like one another and we would respond similarly to the sun. Now, this would probably take some generations before all of the genes really, really got thoroughly mixed up. But how many generations? Because if I understand it, uh, human migration patterns reflect uh, 
or shown clearly one-to-one lockstep correspondence between uh, ultraviolet light and skin color. Yes. And how long is it since we left the Fertile Crescent and wandered across uh, the uh, Alaskans uh, Bering Bering Strait when all the snow was froze up, all the water was frozen in mountains and so on? It was, what, 15,000 years ago or something? Well, probably the first people to get across the Bering Strait or or move along the coast of the Bering Strait was, yeah, around 15,000 years ago. That's nothing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so um, those changes— in in genes related to skin color occurred quickly. By evolutionary standards, they occurred astonishingly quickly. We used to think, oh, it may have taken 20,000 years for many of these changes. But in fact, some of my geneticist colleagues in the U.S. and the U.K. have figured out that some of these changes occurred within a few thousand years. In other words, natural selection evolution was the pressures of evolution were so strong how strong were they well they were so you're supposed to say they were so strong they were they were so strong because in some of these areas in europe and northeastern asia and the bering strait the levels of ultraviolet radiation were so low that people had to lose pigment in their skin in order to maintain production of vitamin D in their skin. And they really need vitamin D to stay healthy. So that, If you were born light-skinned, you had an advantage in, let us say, Britain. That's what is right. Now okay, Britain. So, so this gets to the other half of the equation, that, that you, you don't want so much UV coming into your skin that it's breaking down your folate, but you need enough coming in that you're making vitamin D, and that's the balance. Exactly. And if you live at a very high latitude where there's very low and very seasonal ultraviolet radiation, then the less pigment that you have, the less natural sunscreen, the better, because then you can take advantage of the UV for making vitamin D in your skin. Dorothy, why uh, why did you ask this question? Why is this on your mind? Very uh, cleverly posed, I might add. Well, it, I, basically because of racial tensions, which shouldn't be there. The, the, you know, the al- attitude today is so tense. And why is that? You know, just because your skin is a different color does not mean you're any better, worse, or different than the next person. And And... It just occurred to me, well, if we were all crowded into one area, maybe we would become one color and lose a lot of this, well, I'm better than you because I'm a different color. What we have to think about, and Dorothy, what we have to think about, too, is is that when we think about sort of racial tension, we have to think about how races were sort of formulated in the first place. These are not natural categories. They were created by people in the 18th century. They are intellectual constructs that are basically products of of sort of European philosophers and natural historians' minds. And these are folks who had serious attitude problems and they had a, <laughs> and they had a serious lack of information. And so they lumped people and they didn't know very much about diversity of people on the Earth's surface, so they lumped them, what they knew of them, into a few groups. And a few guys called these races. 
you know, we have lots of examples in history, in ancient history and in prehistory, of people who look differently coming together. And yeah, they, they have raids and they have small wars, but they didn't consider themselves to be separate races. Sometimes they would refer to themselves as sort of less civilized and more civilized according to what the other people were wearing or how they were acting or what language they spoke. We've always been good at othering people, right? Xenophobia. Xenophobia. But we never had until modern times the sort of these racial templates that we have today or that we've had for the last roughly 250 to 300 years. Dorothy, you've hit the nail on the head. You've, you've taken this conversation to a whole new level of technical fabulousness. Uh, thank you for calling, and please stay tuned you, as Dr. Jablonski expands. Stick around for more science rules after this. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Science Rules is back. You were saying that there, there is a genetic selection process for skin color. So when we're looking at different skin colors and we're calling them different races, how significant are those genetic differences? And, and, and uh, like, it, are, if I see a dark skin color, does that mean that those people are all sort of genetically similar? It's a great question, Corey. And the, the differences in, in the skin pigmentation genes can sometimes be considerable. But what's interesting from an evolutionary perspective is that you can get two darkly pigmented people who have different genes that confer the darkly pigmented skin or highly tannable skin. This is a result of human migration, right? That the, human the migration about... and natural selection acting on people when they enter or re-enter an area of high UV. Well, so this they, is sort uh, of like this is com- kind of convergent evolution. Exactly. Yeah, so people in East Africa have dark skin. People in southern India have dark skin, but it's a different combination of genes. Yes. Some of the genes are different. And this is remarkable. You know, when you have these examples of convergent evolution, they're, they're just superb. And they show generally the strength of natural selection, how important this is, because we've had naked skin as we've gone around to most of these places in our history. People in northern China have light skin. People in northern France have light skin. For mostly entirely different genetic reasons. So this is astounding. But the same ultraviolet reason. It's for the same ultraviolet reason. Exactly. So you have this unity 
of sort of the physical force, the evolutionary force that is that is causing populations to adapt. And yet you have different genetic machinery, as it were, that is causing the actual phenotype, the appearance right. to this develop. This is a, a result of the random nature of evolution. Like Absolutely. Somebody, somebody stumbled on a combination of genes that enabled them to fit in wherever they were living. And there are kids to fit in. Those particular individuals who had that particular combination had greater reproductive success than those who didn't. And what we see is that the advantage of those combinations in very high and very low UV environments was significant. And the changes occurred really quickly in evolutionary terms. But because they're so visible, people respond to them and identify with them and they project all these things onto them. Speaking Uh, of visible. Yes, we have another question here. Thea, Thea, you're out there. Where are you calling from? Hi, guys, and uh, good morning from Wollongong, Australia. Wow. Oh, there you go. Wow. Wow. Nina's old stomping ground. Yeah. Really? Stomping continent. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so, for reaching across <laughs> the world to us. That's, uh, that's, that's very kind of you. <laughs> Thank you for letting me reach across the world to you. So, Thea, you have a question. Yes. So, my question is, I've been called albino by people walking past me because I'm very, very white. But I have skin pigmentation in the form of dark freckles and moles, and my hair is blonde, not white. So my understanding was that I can't be albino. What causes albinism, and how is it distinguished from just being very pale? Also, how is a mutation that seems like it would be a huge evolutionary disadvantage managed to stick around for so relatively long? Thea, those are really excellent questions. First of all, you don't have uh, albinism. Uh, Albinism, as you rightly point out, is characterized by a complete absence of pigmentation. It can be some sometimes global lack of pigmentation in the skin and the eyes and the hair, or sometimes just the skin. But the genetic mutations that cause albinism really lead to a a completely different appearance than what you have. Now, I would venture to say, Thea, that your ancestors are from somewhere in in far northern Europe, perhaps not the UK, but, uh, but, you know, far northern Europe, and that... Nordic and Germanic. Yes, exactly. So the, the Nordic and Germanic is, is definitely where the blonde hair, no doubt, came from. Now... Your ancestors lived under an ultraviolet radiation regime that was very different from the one that you're living under now in Wollongong, right? It Mm. was extremely low, extremely seasonal, and basically they did not need to have any melanin sunscreen in their in their skin. Well, not just in, that. If they had it, it was a disadvantage. Exactly. Right? Yeah. They needed to have depigmented skin. And so what you have is beautifully adapted to the plains of northern Germany. So sorry <laughs> that you're in eastern Australia. You know, I'm... <laughs> Because there you face some of the highest UV levels on Earth, and as you know, you have to protect yourself uh, vigilantly. This brings us to a question. Very much so. Thea, do you wear a lot of hats? You you carry a parasol. Uh, I 
I wear a lot of very broad-brimmed hats. Probably just one at a time. Everything, just one. Everything I put on my skin has to have sunscreen in it. Yes. And the Australians have been really at the vanguard of sun protection in the world because there are so many people of Thea's appearance who live in Australia now and they live under high UV regimes. So they they wear a lot of sunscreen. They wear protective clothing. The kids and the adults wear hats all the time. It's, it's a great country for sun awareness. Now, let me ask you this, Nina, uh, and Thea, check this out. When we met years ago, you pointed out that uh, as people migrated from East Africa, they went through Eurasia, came across to the Americas, North America. Then they moved down the west coast of North America into South America. Their skin, uh, their, their offspring who had darker skin had a slight advantage, enough of an advantage. So over a few millennia, here we are. But their skin never got quite as dark as in East Africa. Because in part, they had more hats. Is yes. that accurate? That's Well, they had more hats and they had a lot of other gear. You know, when we think about humans moving around, let's say, 15,000 years ago, they had stuff. They had the beginnings of sewn clothing, tailored clothing, because they had needles. They had shelters. Where do I get a needle? Well, you get a needle from ivory, from bone. So people started making needles big time around 20,000 years ago, and that really revolutionized. Those were the days, Corey. Uh, I should have been a tailor back then. I would have done quite well. And anyway, that made a big difference because when we could bring with us all of this cultural gear. REI kind of something. Yeah, exactly. It was like paleo REI, the the original sort of protection that was not our skin against the environment. This changed things a lot. It really is that significant. It made a huge difference. Wow. Thea, great question. Wear your hat, young woman. And and your sunscreen. You seem seem to be doing well with that. But uh... Now, Nina, in our lifetime... I, uh, I've been on Earth, you know, six decades plus. Are we going to see uh, Thea's offspring that have darker skin have a slight advantage? Are we gonna, is that measurable? Basically, Thea and her family are living in this cultural bubble where they're completely protected from the adverse effects of ultraviolet radiation. We've already heard about her broad hats and her kids, if she has any, are, you know, wearing sunscreen and wearing broad hats. And basically, all of this cultural buffering, as we would call it, protects us from the action of natural selection. So, you know, we can continue to sort of have skin that doesn't quite match the ultraviolet radiation levels of our environment because we compensate through what we do and what we wear. And it's enough, gosh, it's, it's, it's bigger than evolution. It's bigger. These now, days, it's bigger. So uh, thank you very much, Thea. Thank you very much for your call. Oh. That, you, that was a that was a great question. Thank you guys so much for your you, answers. You, you nudged it along in a fabulous way. Now, Nina, like, you st- what's your origin story? Wh- how did you become a paleobiologist for crying out loud? Bill, it started. Uh, talk about an accident. Uh, I was raised in upstate New York, and it just so happened that 
beneath my feet, literally, as I was walking around as a kid, there were all of these fossils in trilobites the every, everywhere. Trilobites, crinoids, all of these interesting invertebrates. And I asked my father about them when I was really tiny, and he said, well, that's the evidence of life on Earth. There was a, a sea, an ancient sea here millions of years ago. And I thought, what? What's that about? These were just beautiful things. I was interested in fossils from about the time I could start thinking, and I'm afraid I haven't grown up. So uh, we have another caller. We do. We have Jules. Jules, you're out there. Where are you calling from? I'm from uh, Miami, Florida. There you go. And you have a question. I do. First of all, thank you for having me on your show. Big time fan. Uh, you um, have a dog on the show, too? <laughs> <laughs> He's been quiet up until this oh, point. No, it's yeah. fine. But does he, uh, does he or she have hair? Uh, it's actually 100% covered in hair. Mm-hmm. So he's not, you can tell, <laughs> probably not a human. <laughs> no. Not a modern human. The, the walking on four, four legs thing. Yeah. Oh, that. Oh, yeah. A bit of a giveaway. Right. Yeah, yeah. But go for it. Here you go, Charles. <laughs> so my question is, um, so is the amount of melanin, like in an offspring, um, is it as simple as darker is the dominant trait and lighter is recessive? Or does, like, the parent-son exposure affect what genes are exposed in their kids? Pretty much saying, like, is there an epigenetic link to factors like, you know, latitude and general sun exposure? Good question, Jules. Epigenetic link. Yeah, wow. That vocabulary. Um, Maybe we should start by explaining (laughs) what an epigenetic link is. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Basically, what Jules is asking is if something in the environment in which we live right now can actually affect the expression of the genes. That's Lamarck, kind of the giraffe stretching his neck. But, you know, epigenetic mechanisms now have gone from sort of the Lamarck closet into the, the. bright light of day and are widely accepted as being really important in understanding our evolution and understanding our health and so forth. So you got DNA, but something happens to the environment to modify it, which is passed on to your offspring. Sometimes it can be passed on. In the case of skin color, the genes actually, to the best of our knowledge, are not affected by the parents' sun exposure. So the Skin pigmentation genes that come together will interact with one another, and they will produce a particular skin pigmentation in the in offspring. Now that can be, you know, it can be a little bit intermediate. It can be more like one parent and less like another. Uh, It, but there's nothing dominant or recessive about it. Basically, skin pigmentation is caused by, you know, a small bag full of genes. Dozens of genes. A bag of genes. That's right, a bag of genes. (laughs) And some of them have a stronger effect than others, and they do interact with one another. And so it's hard to predict from the appearance of two parents what their offspring will look like, except that they will be somewhere intermediate. There you go. So epigeneticism is not the deal. That's an ex-Jules. Thank you for asking that. That is a a key point. Dr. J, Dr. Jablonski has made here. Now, thank you, Jules. Well, thank you for answering it. Absolutely. Doctor, you do a lot of public talks. You talk about skin. I do. And we're living at this time, the word everybody likes is fraught. Yeah. Fraught with uh, trouble, loaded with problems. 
What kind of reaction do you get from people? I talk to mostly academic audiences, but I talk to big public audiences on many continents. What about a podcast audience? A podcast audience I do occasionally. Bill, that's, a, that's an excellent idea, though. <laughs> yes. Like, uh, yeah. yeah thank, you for, thank you for bringing that up. But with that said, what's the reaction from people? You know, when people are curious about why they look the way they do, they come into a lecture curious and ready to learn. And what I try to do is talk about this interesting trait in vocabulary that they're not used to hearing. When you talk about a controversial trait, you need to talk about it stripped of the controversial jargon. Right, because so, pe- people bring a lot of taboos and expectations and baggage, uh, uh, you know, both in terms of you know what what they are angry about or what they don't want to talk about. That's right. So, how, so that's so how skin break. color is a controversial trait. Skin color is a controversial trait, and it's even more controversial if you start out talking about white and black and brown or yellow and red. These sort of cardinal old terms of racial designation. I don't use those. I use descriptive terms. I use discussions about levels of ultraviolet radiation intensity. And I talk about these mechanisms that I've explained in very simple and straightforward terms. I lead through people through this story as logically as I can. And I talk about the health consequences. And I talk about how different skin colors have come to have labels and be associated with race names. But basically, when people hear that story, they're just relieved. People recognize, at least when they're sitting there, that, okay, these these facts make sense. These scientific facts make sense. This continuum of skin color is a really interesting natural phenomenon that is a wonder to behold. And we've put these cultural labels onto people, and they've become these rigid templates in our mind, and this is a mess. Most people come out of one of these sessions feeling like, hold on, we can change this. And I must say, this is why I've gotten into childhood education, because I think we can change this. I think we can change the way that we think about skin color. Now, when you say childhood, how old are you talking? Because I, I have a clear idea, you know. You know, I think kids, when they're about 7, 8, 9, 10, are incredibly curious and getting more curious about why they look the way they do, why people treat one another differently on the basis of appearance, and they're watching their parents and they're watching other folks around them. And so I think talking to fairly little kids, including middle school age kids, about this, it's like, Let's let's cut racism before it even starts by explaining some simple facts of the the beginnings, the origins of human physical diversity. Kids love it. Science rules will be right back. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. 
Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. You're listening to Science Rules. This is a perfect time, I believe, to uh, take a call from Shreya. Did I say it properly, Shreya? Yes, that's right. Where are you calling from? Hi, Shreya. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Chicago. Chicago, somewhere in North America, in the middle there. Uh, Shreya, hit it. Your question, that is. Yeah. (laughs) If scientifically, other than the melanin, there is no such thing as race, does that mean race-oriented health care, so like certain diseases are more prevalent in other places than um, in other, sorry, races than others, um, is a myth, or is it caused by societal factors like cuisine or culture or something like that? Mostly, this race-oriented medicine is a myth. But but tribal, I mean, there's so there's cystic fibrosis largely affects people of European ancestry. Um, Sickle cell anemia. Uh, affects people of African ancestry, right? But we can have people from a variety of different so-called races or ethnicities who suffer from sickle cell anemia and similar maladies. Cystic fibrosis, for instance, occurs in a wide variety of people, mostly from Europe, but not exclusively uh-huh. from Europe. It's the not exclusive that yes. messes you up. And so, you know, with a lot of, <clears throat> Shreya, with a lot of the modern medical sort of tailored racial medicine, what we're seeing is oversimplified treatments that are based on the assumption that people have a certain bag of genes that may contribute to a predisposition to diseases or that they have a particular lifestyle. Oh, that's the diet question. That's the diet question. And often, these sort of these, this sort of race-based medicine is based on uh, people's patterns of diet, diet and exercise, diet and lack of sun exposure, and so forth, so that we can get sometimes patterns of disease that appear to be mapping onto racial boundaries. But in fact, what they do is that they map onto class boundaries in society, cultural cultural boundaries. Where you're from boundaries. That's right. You know, can you afford to eat better food and and, uh, go to the doctor and be free of stress, for instance? So I think we have to be extremely wary of of what is behind so-called tailored racial medicine and mostly discard it and instead think about what confers health or lack of health or less good health on the basis of what we know of our own personal ancestry and life habits. So how do you – Shreya, this is like the the most important question of the day. <laughs> Thank you so much. Not the other questions were great. That's not what I meant. Shreya, this was a really good question, and uh, thank you for bringing this up because it leads me to what I think is the question that we all want to know. How can we break down these deeply entrenched myths about race and skin color and cultures and so on? Well, I think we can do it in a variety of ways. Probably the most effective is through early childhood education. And 
this doesn't mean that we have to teach kids about, you know, detailed biochemistry, physiology. Which and, would be and, cool. Yeah, you know, which would be cool. But but we don't have to go into, like, you know, deep dives into detailed physics or biochemistry. We can teach kids basic phenomena that are completely understandable, and they get it. That's the beautiful thing is when, when you explain things like ultraviolet radiation intensity and skin color and natural sunscreen and the absence of sunscreen, they get it. And they say, what's all the fuss about? Yeah, I bet they do. And also back to, back to Shreya's question, you hear a lot these days when you're talking about medical research, about personalized medicine, uh, where people are starting to think in terms of individual genomes and individual uh, lifestyles rather than lumping people into groups. I mean, that's sort of the next frontier. That seems like in a very practical way that addresses part of what Shreya is asking about is, is, you know, sort of recognizing that these, these sort of lump categories are in many cases projections or misperceptions of what's of, – of these very complicated individual variations. Yes, and in many cases, these are well-meaning attempts to try to personalize medicine. But by well-meaning, they tend to actually do as much harm as good because they tend to stigmatize groups that are that are being given particularly raci- so-called racially modified medicines or special for them medicines. So, Shreya, what 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 inspired you to ask this question? Is is this something that that you've you've yourself been involved with? Um. Not really because I'm an engineer, but I know that in my community we have a prevalence of people getting diabetes in old age and heart, or like heart problems in old age. And I don't really, I don't know whether I see that in other races as much. So, so I know that when it comes to um, us going to the doctor, we usually get that, that that's like something that's prevalent or more likely to happen. And so I was just kind of wondering whether that was something that was just kind of fed to us because of our race or whether it was something that actually might be existing. It sounds much more likely that that you have shared lifestyle factors that may contribute to a particular pattern of diseases. Well, when I hear the word when I hear the word diabetes, I associate that with diet. Is that incorrect? Diet sedentism, sitting yeah. around sitting you know, around is Yes. And yeah. and uh and not getting as much sun exposure. I mean, one of the interesting things about modern life is that we're inside and we're not moving around very much. And so in many urban dwellers, we see a low level of vitamin D, a vitamin D deficiency, and this actually can worsen the effects of diabetes. Whoa. In all cultures. For sure. Yes, in all cultures. And we see this in all urban cultures worldwide now. Worldwide urban cultures have diabetes. Diabetes, diabetes. and well, tendency. tendency toward and uh, overweight, sedentism, and vitamin D deficiency. Speaking of vitamin – Shreya, that, was a, that is a great question. You kind of hit the nail on the head. Speaking of – Thank you. Thank you. Speaking of vitamin D deficiencies, ev- everybody's talking about it. Is vitamin D? Do we all have? Does everybody have a sudden d- vitamin D deficiency, or is that there's two molecules of vitamin D and one's being confused with the other? And blah blah blah. No, blah, blah. I mean mo- people who live inside and who don't get much sun exposure and who don't eat food that has vitamin D in it can suffer from vitamin D deficiencies. And this does tend to be more common now in people who live in cities and don't get outside and so forth. 
it isn't quite the plague that people have made it out to be, nor is, you know, vitamin D supplementation the universal panacea that it's made out to be. But we can't get away from the fact that we live lives that are so different from those of our ancestors. And so we have to compensate. We do have to try to get more vitamin D so that we don't become grossly vitamin D deficient when we live urban, indoor, sedentary where lives. Do I, where do I, the manufacturer of vitamin D tablets, capsules, where do I get vitamin D? You can get vitamin D from a variety of sources. I mean, commercial manufacturers, many of them make vitamin D actually from lanolin, from the byproducts of wool making. But you can also make vitamin D from a variety of algae. So there's, you know, you can get vegetarian vitamin D. You can get uh, animal-made wool, wool vitamin based, D. Wool-based But it's, it's widely available now and cheap. I, I really like my, my mutton-based vitamin D, personally, <laughs> but that's... Corey! Bill! Do you it's hear alive! That? It's alive, <laughs> Bill! It's alive with the sound of lightning! Yes, so that thunder, Nina, indicates it's time for the lightning round. Nina, do you, you use sunscreen? I do. And what is your ancestry? My ancestry is sort of a mixed bag of Central European, Southern European, and North African. So I, I have sort of what's called Mediterranean olive skin. I tan quickly, but I also am sensitive to sun, especially if I haven't been out in the sun for a while. Do you take vitamin D supplements? I do. Do you take folate? Sometimes. Folate is a, is a great uh, sort of anti-cancer agent, uh, but I, I only take it occasionally. All right. Should we all be going outside more? Well, certainly it doesn't hurt us quite as much as, as some of the more vigilant dermatologists would have it, especially when we expose parts of our skin that aren't normally exposed to the sun. For instance, if you're out of the office at lunchtime and you have a chance to expose your upper arm, let's say, or part of your leg to the sun, you can make vitamin D in your skin really quickly. Right and there in your leg, Corey. Right there. Roll up your sleeves. Five to ten minutes. And that is not really long enough for you to do serious damage to your skin. And so a little bit, a little bit of unprotected sun exposure, depending on what your ancestry is, is probably going to do you more good than harm. We have emojis on our electric phone machines. If we have five different skin tones right now, how many should we really have? Well, if you could have the whole Pantone series, you know, of 110 or so, that might be a good start. 110. I, I feel like being able to blend colors and emojis, that seems like a technologically feasible it solution. Does, if yeah. you're out there, you're an electrical engineer out there, you're a software writer, developer, think about a spectrum of you could match to your own skin or the skin of the person you're trying to send to. Some uh, with yeah. 110 gradations? Absolutely. <laughs> Done. We got okay. it. This is a question. Bill won't ask you this, but I'll ask on his behalf. If you really could have Bill's skull after he's done using it, uh, would you want it? Or is that just creepy? Well, you know, skulls 
tell you a lot about a person's <laughs> ancestry, but they also tell you about what they did during their life. So I could look at Bill's teeth. I could look at his, his jaw joints. I could look at his eye sockets. I could get a lot about how he spent his time by looking at his skull. So yeah, I would technically, but you know, I think he's got a little bit of use still left in it. So yeah. I'm well, here's hoping. Uh, thank you so much, Nina. This has just been fantastic. Thank you out there for calling in and really uh, pushing our conversation forward. It's just been another great uh, podcast here at Science Rules. Uh, just reminding us all that Nina Jablonski is the Evan Pugh University Professor of Anthropology at Pennsylvania State University, and she's doing so much to help us strip away the mysteries and misconceptions regarding skin color. Uh, now, uh, Nina, you've also written a book um, with a, a South African writer for kids, and that's called uh, Skin We Are In. Yeah, this was just a, a fun book that we we produced last year, and I'm now in the process of of writing a book for North American audiences, and I'm I'm right now looking for uh, a writer to work with me on this and an illustrator. So I'm really excited, but we've got a great publisher lined up. And needless to say, this is something that we all need. What, what, you what, know, Corey, what, you're a freelancer. I, I am a freelance writer. I've collaborated on a certain number of books with uh, writers, including Bill Nye. Wow. Uh, really? What? Yes. <laughs> don't you Bill, you don't remember? I, 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 was, I remember all too well, young man. <laughs> I am Bill Nye. I am Corey S. Powell. And remember, when it comes to the pale and pigmented parts of our universe, science, science rules. If you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show. It helps us get the words out. And I really appreciate you all taking that little bit of time. So thank you. Now, Science Rules is produced by Jordan Bell. Our engineer today is Jared O'Connell. Mixing and original theme music are by Casey Halford. Special thanks, of course, to Claire Rawlinson. And Chris Bannon is the CCO, the Chief Content Officer of Stitcher, where... Science rules. Stitcher. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find ten. So we open a drawer here. And there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Now Prince donated it. this guitar. <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket right? worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter. Where every day feels like Saturday, and french fries are a food group. Where flip-flops are always in fashion, 
and seafood is always in season. Where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door. Where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.